So I'd like to offer some reflections on what we're doing here together. And uh, we could equally say we are what we're doing here, or we could say uh, on what's happening here. And uh, if you were to be asked, or if I were to ask you, so what's happening? What's it like to be here? What's your experience? We might find a lot of different responses that come to us, ranging from uh, things that we enjoy and appreciate, things that we find difficult or challenging. And uh, that sense of meeting ourselves, meeting our experience, noticing what it's like to actually be here is very much at the heart of what we're engaged in. To see that when we actually stop, when we allow ourselves to uh, slow down and begin to come to a to a halt in a gentle and organic manner, we we start to feel, we start to sense, we start to notice our life. And this is a good thing. This is actually a very good thing to be engaged in, the noticing of our life. Like, here we are, kind of unremarkable, ordinary, no one's surprised to discover that, oh yes, we're here. And yet, at another level, there's something remarkable, certainly something a little... Uh, also confounding about it. We are here, having been born, probably without our planning on it, and one day, at some point, we will no longer be here, again, probably without our choosing how that happened. And there's this process going on that we call life, that we could equally call being here. We could also think in terms of, oh, what am I doing? Well, I'm on a retreat. At least I chose to come on the retreat, so we kind of feel like we've got a bit more of a handle on that. I chose this particular retreat because of the title or the description or the teachers or the date or whatever um, made us come along to this particular one. We have a sense of somehow agency. It, you know, we made it happen. And... That's kind of reassuring in a certain way. It makes us feel a little bit like I know what I'm doing or at least I choose what I'm doing even if I didn't quite know what I was getting into. Um, we can see how this situation here is one that looks like it should be really quite fun, shouldn't it? I mean, kind of lovely environment of the garden and the grounds with the trees and the plants and the creatures and beautiful sunny day and surrounded by like pretty friendly people, no one's sort of, sort of saying anything nasty or doing anything nasty, at least that I've noticed, and I suspect the same for you. We're invited to do a few relatively simple activities that involve sitting around on a cushion for a while, being invited expressly to do very little at all, uh, likewise ambling back and forth quite slowly with no rush, no pressure, then to do some movement that we're guided in, that we're invited not to really, again, to rush or feel like we have to get too much done, all the while, of course, being encouraged to notice what's happening, to be in touch. And that simple encouragement somehow seems to take or transform what might have seemed to be like a pretty good holiday plan into something that might actually turn out to be really demanding, really challenging for us. I mean, some people arrive and, you know, it's just after 7.30 and it's like, oh, I'm exhausted. You know, I'm not sure I can make it through a whole Dharma talk. I'm going to bed. And yet if we were to go home and 
speak to our friends and tell them, you know, describe what we actually did. So we sat around, we walked around, we did some gentle yoga movement and we sort of brought our attention into our bodies and our hearts and our minds to see what was happening. That'd be hard pressed to actually understand why it is it seems so difficult or so tiring at times. And yet it is. This is significant, this is instructive, it's not a random coincidence, it isn't just happening to you, in case you're wondering. Uh, other people are probably experiencing something rather similar, as those of you who had groups today, some of you certainly commented on, and I imagine will be commented on again in, in future groups. Such things happen. When we come into a retreat, it's like we are faced with our life, and in the solitude, in the silence, in the invitation to notice what's happening, to actually inhabit our life consciously. We feel both perhaps the preciousness of it, because it is precious, and yet also we feel at times the, the struggle and the challenge of it, because it is a challenge to live our life. I think for all of us this is so at times. For some of us it can feel like much of the time we're challenged in so many ways. Sometimes we think that this is because maybe we're doing it wrong. And certainly there might be uh, ways and things that we have to learn. That's why we come to spiritual practice in order to learn. That makes sense. But the fact that it's challenging isn't necessarily because we're doing it wrong. It's actually to a significant degree because that's how it is. Because having entered into life, taken birth, we will be faced with challenges as an intrinsic and natural part of the process of life, of growing, of more and more fully developing into our potential as human beings. And yet, we'd really like to not have to notice that, I think. Our world is pretty well geared up to helping us avoid trying to help us. It doesn't actually succeed, but trying to help us avoid noticing that actually sometimes we don't get what we want. Sometimes we can't and will not have it the way we would like it. Sometimes what we experience in body, heart and mind is difficult, is challenging. And this is true for all of us. To recognize, to acknowledge it is not to somehow need to become glum or sort of miserable about the fact, but to actually acknowledge what is true is actually to give ourselves space to address it, to look at it. It's not to say that that's all of our experience, of course. There are many moments and times that are sweet, that are uplifted, that are joyful, that are touching for us. But we really do need to acknowledge, and in a retreat I think we have very little choice but to acknowledge this aspect of our experience in which we are challenged, in which we find it difficult, where we find our knee hurts, and sure we can move our leg, but then the other knee starts to hurt. And even if we move it, the one that we move starts to hurt a little while, or maybe our knee's not hurting at all, it's in our back, it's our shoulder, or it's some part of our body that's got nothing to do with the meditation, as far as we can tell, sort of the middle of the elbow, and can't see what I'm going to do about that. It's got nothing to do with sitting cross-legged. Or, or we find in the emotional life, at times we might feel confusion, just struggling with 
dullness that comes, or restlessness that arises, thinking, I've got to somehow get over this. Or deeper, more poignant experiences, when we maybe touch into places of loss, or, or fear, or anger, or hurt, confusion. When we kind of plant ourselves, when we allow ourselves to land, this is very much what we're doing, allowing ourselves, supporting ourselves, encouraging ourselves to land in our life where we are, with our eyes open. When we do this, what we notice also, as well as that which I've been speaking about, we notice that there's a certain quiet, sometimes it's not so quiet, voice in us that's kind of telling us, you've got to get it together, you've got to get it sorted out, you've got to fix these conditions that are problematic, you've got to fix your mind or your body or your emotions or, you know, when we're speaking to ourselves as my mind, my emotions. We've got to fix this, we've got to figure out how to get it under control. And once we've got it under control, we've got to keep it under control and make sure it happens the way it's supposed to, which is usually sort of code for the way I'd like it to happen, the way I'd prefer it to happen. And of course there's a, a place for the... Uh, active engagement with our life where we seek to bring in that which is wholesome, that which is beneficial, that which is nourishing and uplifting for ourselves and for others. There's no suggestion at all that we shouldn't engage in that kind of activity in, in, in Dharma teaching. And yet what happens is that we easily get seduced by the idea that somehow what we're looking for in our life is somewhere else. That Coming to a place of rest will only happen when we've gone to some other destination, when we've created some other experience, when we've become someone other than who we are right now. And that there's this sort of attractive and seductive prospect that if I just work on things a little bit more, they're just, it's like they're just about to fall into place. If I can just sort out my knees, then this meditation is going to really start to fly. Or if I can just let go in that bit down there in the bottom of my back, then the posture and will just become effortless. Or whatever it might be. In our life, of course, it's sometimes larger things we think we need to sort out and fix. But what it does is it perpetuates an idea that keeps us disconnected from ourselves. Because as soon as we're thinking that somewhere else is where we have to get to, we're immediately needing to figure out how we got where we are already, which means we have to think a lot about what happened in the past that obviously got us here, and then somehow find a way to apply that to the future to either keep us where we are, if we like it, or get us the heck out of here if we don't. And so the fascination with past and future, often born of and driven by a sense of somehow believing that controlling or manipulating our experience will get us somewhere where we'll actually be happy, where we'll actually be able to rest, where we'll no longer need to continue this process. And sometimes it becomes really quite a battle, doesn't it? Sometimes we can find ourselves getting kind of angry with other people or situations or, of course, with ourselves in a way in which we kind of almost want to shake ourselves for another to get them out of the way or get ourselves 
in the way we think about it, out of our way, as though we could be in our way. We are our way. Sometimes we think we're in our way, which is rather sad. And leads to a lot of conflict, a lot of suffering. There's a um, a wonderful and apparently true story that I encountered some time ago um, that I think says a lot about this process for us, of trying to sort of fix, manipulate, change the way things are, in order to suit how we'd like them to be. Then it's uh, a, a transcript of a radio conversation of a US naval ship with Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. And it begins, American ship, please divert your course 15 degrees the north to avoid a collision. Canadians respond, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. The Canadians, no, I say again, you divert your course. Seems like conflict is inevitable, really, doesn't it, in this situation? The Americans' response, and this is in capital letters, so I guess in the form of communication that counts as shouting or getting a little angry. This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship of the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north, that's 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be taken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> Your call. <laughs> and it's really quite sweet, isn't it? <laughs> to imagine the ship ordering the rock or the island, the lighthouse, to move out of its way. And yet it's also kind of a little ironic, isn't it? Because sometimes we can find ourselves in very much that position. When we're struggling with the way things are, wanting them to be other than as they are, we become that American ship, coming to the lighthouse to change course. When it is patently unable to do so, life cannot be other than as it is. That's not to say there isn't a potential for transformation within that. But transformation is not born of the controlling or the manipulating of experience or life. Life is what it is, in its perfectly imperfect nature. And if we spend our time and our energy trying to control that or manipulate it, we will ultimately fail. And we might feel a little foolish in the end as well, when we realise that actually life could not be other than as it is. So what are our other options? What are our other options? And this is a really important question because it's just been suggested in fact trying to change or manipulate our experience which we've probably many of us spent much of our life doing we're just being told that's not going to work we might feel a bit like hey that kind of leaves me with nowhere to go and nothing to do which actually isn't a bad place to be left but not necessarily one we can easily accept or 
accommodate. But what's it like if we keep doing that? What's it like? Just, just before we consider how am I going to do it differently, what's it like to live our life constantly trying to control or manipulate our experience? And do we notice ourselves getting frustrated with ourselves in the meditation ever when the mind wanders off? Kind of interesting, isn't it? Our mind that we think must be mine and at least should do what I tell it to, and does it? Anyone here have a mind that does what we tell it to? I mean, meditation would be easy if that were so, but kind of remarkable and yet a little shocking, isn't it? My mind, this thing that feels so much like it's me, doesn't do what I tell it to. It has a mind of its own. I don't know where that leaves me. It's got a mind of its own. What have I got? <laughs> what we do have is the capacity to observe, to see how it unfolds, how it moves what's actually going on when we look. I grew up in New Zealand in a small country town and a place which was rather lovely in many respects but also relatively narrow in its, sort of, I guess, its cultural basis and outlook. And uh, I didn't know that at the time, it was just where I grew up and that's how I thought the world was. And uh, the main form of entertainment and recreation in, in this particular world was drinking, going down to the pub. I'm sure communities exist like this uh, here in England um, and elsewhere. We're going to the pub, and um, once we turned old enough to look like we were almost old enough to go into a pub, um, that's what pretty much you did. And if you wanted to have a social life, that's all that was on offer. And I remember how we would go, and it, it struck me at some point how we would go into the pub and you know, have some drinks and we'd tell each other what a great time we had the last time we did this. It was so good. You remember last Saturday? Yeah, we went to that. Da, da, da. And then we'd you know, talk about what a great time we had the next time we were going to... what a great time we would have the next time we were going to do this. Oh, it'll be good next week, yeah. And we'd get a little bored of where we were and go to the pub five miles down the road. Let's go there, yeah. And we'd go through the same thing. Around three or four pubs in a night. Didn't count as a pub crawl, it was just, you know, what you do. And at some point it struck me that actually, although we spent a lot of time telling each other what a good time we had the last time, what a great time we were going to have the next time, actually, I wasn't actually having a good time at that time. And it's actually we can live in that space suspended between our hopes and our fears, our, our hope for a better future, our fear of one that isn't going to be better, somehow suspended between the past and the future, and not really, not really living where we are, not really happy, actually, where we are. To see this is to begin to actually recognize that we need to wake up, that the process of constantly trying to get something, go somewhere, or become someone else in order to find satisfaction never ends. No matter how many times we actually... You must have experienced this. I'm sure you all have. We get the thing we wanted that we were sure when I get it, then I'll be happy. We get it. And for a moment we're happy. How nice. Yeah. And a moment later we think of something else. 
that we want and need and must have in order to be happy. And probably for quite a few years, decades, lifetimes perhaps, we keep acting that out. And yet, as long as we feed, and what, what we do in this is we feed that tendency to think, that belief, that idea, that somehow it's in the things I should get, or the experiences I need to have, or the someone I have to be. If we make that the point, then it's never ending. It just keeps going on. I mean, probably someone here, maybe more than one, had the thought today, well, gosh, my mind would just be quiet then. My meditation would be so enjoyable, or at least it would start to go somewhere. And probably that person, if they had that thought at some point in the day, probably at some other point in the day, had a moment where the mind was quiet. I think, oh, that's nice, great. And they think, not much happening, but boring. <laughs> is this all of this? And we see that what we thought was the place we wanted to get to, get to turns out not to be. That underlying tendency, that movement, that pull, drags us again away from where we are. So to allow yourself in, in being here to be touched by that sense of considering or questioning your life. What's really important here? And in this question, the question is what's important, not the answer. So it's not a question that we have to answer. It's more, so what's really important in my life? What do I really want to bring into my life? Not by controlling or manipulating experience, but by what we actually connect with in ourselves, what we actually bring forth from our heart, our mind, our life. It's not like we can do it another day or another time, or on the next retreat. This time I think I'll just have a, I'll see if I can get in some comfortable sunbathing time and some sort of nice calm moment. That's fine, lovely. Enjoy the sun, enjoy the moments of calm that come. But there's a deeper thread that runs through what we're doing here, which is around, around that question of our life and what it's all about. The beautiful poem by Mary Oliver, called The Summer's Day, she writes, who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention. How to fall down into the grass. How to be idle and blessed. How to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life?
this wild and precious life that we have. If we were to recognize that that's what it is, we'd probably spend less of our time trying to escape from where we are. Because actually the thing that we notice as we, as we watch, and I imagine we've had all, you know, all too much perhaps, ample opportunity, all too much opportunity to watch how we escape from where we are. To see how quickly the mind flickers away into the realms of important matters we must, must resolve. Or totally irrelevant, inconsequential and random thoughts, fantasies and imaginings. And how remarkably quickly and enthusiastically our mind just slips away, dance and dies. To actually be here, to not escape our life, to not avoid our life, this is actually the undertaking of spiritual practice. This is the undertaking of of our heart's journey, consciousness, to enter life with our eyes open to see what we discover. And that sense of, you know, wanting to escape, get me out of here, not at all unusual when I'm sitting and, I don't know if you ever noticed, you know, I've been sitting here for a while, and quite a while, it must have been at least 45 minutes. Maybe they've fallen asleep at the front. Maybe we've been here for hours. We notice that sense of, I want to get out of here. Have you noticed the sense of, ah, when the bell goes? Like, <laughs> what's different when the bell is rung? We're still sitting here, still the same room, same body, same mind, but the sound of that bell is like, ah. Oh. And it's like, now we can escape, but where are we going to go? Do some walking? Go walking back and forth, back and forth. When's it going to ring the bell? I want to go sitting. <laughs> At least after lunch we can do some yoga. And then, okay, oh, we've done this movement now, haven't we? We're still doing? Okay. You know, it's like how quickly we want to get to the next thing and the next thing. That movement of escaping, of getting away. And yet when we can actually relax, when we can actually let ourselves rest, Be with the experience, meet it directly. What's that like? Perhaps it's only been moments for you, but I'm sure, again, just as there have been moments that have been challenging and difficult, there have also been moments, for sure, you couldn't help it, when you actually arrived. I sometimes think, you know, we tell people to pay attention, and they find that they can't do it all the time, and they really struggle, because mind goes everywhere, they, we react against things we don't like, we chase after pleasant experiences, hoping we can get them. Uh, things like hard work. But I sometimes wonder, what if we gave the instruction, okay, be completely mindless. 45 minutes, I don't want you to notice that you're here for a single second. Could you do it? Actually, I think you'd fail. You wouldn't be able to not notice that you were here. You wouldn't be able to not notice what was actually going on. Any more than one continuous can continuously be present for 45 minutes. That's not the point. The point is the noticing of what's going on and the orienting ourselves towards making that what's important. And see how we can easily start to believe that maybe this isn't for me, you know. Well, 
thought I'd give it a try. Well, you know, it worked last time, but I'm not sure if it's really going to work this time. You know, maybe I should just, uh, you know, sort of head out for the uh, the lawn and make the best of it as a sort of a sort of sunbathing holiday. Or, or we look around in the room and it, it feels like, well, you know, oh, no, I don't think I can do this. You know, doesn't seem to be working. I thought I'd give it a try. You know, this is your first time. Good on you. You know, I've done well to give it a try, but everyone else seems to be doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. All kind of calm, still, but pretty quiet. Probably they're having some deep experience. Maybe some of them are just about to be awakened. Wow. <laughs> but me, well, you know, people report this regularly. Of course, after one looks around and sees all these people doing this amazing thing we think they're doing while we're sitting here sort of tired and confused and bored and whatever on our cushion. No, I'm probably home. Okay, I'll wait till the bell goes, sit here. Then I'm going home. <laughs> and someone else opens their eyes and looks around and the person sitting beside them who a moment ago had thought they were the only one. The person they look at and wow, they're really calm. They look really still. Both Helen and I have noticed it. It's actually really calm and quiet in here for day one on a retreat. It's actually really quite lovely. I mean, that doesn't mean that the inner experience isn't going, ah, get me out of here. But something in us is settling. And yet really quickly we think that it's not, or it's not working. Just the fact that it happens to so many people that we believe that we're the only one who can't get it, who can't do it. And we're not. This is part of what happens to our mind because our mind is so used to being given something to do and to achieve and how to get there and how to do it and then get on with it. And yet here, although we're giving you guidance and instructions and things to engage with, definitely, in the different forms of practice, the emphasis which hopefully you're, you're, you're picking up from us is, is much more to just meet where we are, open to what actually is already here rather than somehow bring something new into it or make something other than this happen. And this is important because although we can, and at times appropriately do, adjust our experiences, just as we can adjust our posture, fine, it's really uncomfortable. It feels like, you know, we're gritting our teeth and, ah. Change your posture. You don't have to battle against your body. And that's just a general you find you can still bring some sense of ease or relaxation to being with something painful. That's okay. And if you, when you change your posture, you, at the end of sitting, you find that any discomfort or pain that was there seems to fade away reasonably quickly. You know, two, three minutes at the most. Unlikely you're doing anyhow. If pain is still there some time later, then probably you should have changed your posture a little earlier. Certainly, if you're hobbling through 45 minutes of walking then I suggest you, you know, listen to your body. Listen to your body. We don't give out prizes for sitting still longer than anyone else or longer than yourself. What's more about, it's about being sensitized to what's going on. Not just changing our posture because it's a little uncomfortable, but knowing it's feeling that somehow we have to immobilize ourselves. And so, although we can change our posture, sure, and we could say, like, my knee hurts, so, or my back aches, so I change my posture, I bend a little, I flex, or I, I straighten my leg out for a little while. We can see that what happens then is, sure, the discomfort goes away. We can arrange things in our life. Sometimes we can actually get the other ship out of our, out of our way, have a 
of a clear path. But sometimes we can't. There'll be times for all of us through illness or ageing, and probably plenty of us have already encountered it, where it's not just a case of adjusting our posture. Something is uncomfortable, painful, and that's just how it's going to be for some time. Or maybe that's how it's going to be for the rest of our time. And what do we do with that? How are we going to live in a body that experiences pain? In a mind with a mind that experiences dizziness and stress and pressure? With a heart that experiences tenderness and grief and so many things? Because although we can sometimes escape our experience, we can never escape our mind. Because we can't escape our mind, we really need to take care of it and see what we're supporting in the condition and the quality of our mind. And this is very much the foundation of practice, what we engage in, is to see, well, what am I encouraging? What am I supporting here? Because if we're supporting a tendency of controlling, manipulating, always being driven to try and fix or change what's going on, that very tendency makes it impossible for us to come to rest. And the more we enact it, the stronger it becomes. If it was a a successful strategy, then by now it would have worked. We've all done plenty of it. We'd have got there by now. Like if someone could just point out to those little uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, mice in the the, the wheels that they're running on, that actually they're not going anywhere. Maybe maybe they're doing it for exercise. They're not trying to get anywhere. They're probably smarter than we think. Um, but sometimes it's like that for us it's like we're constantly trying to get somewhere but actually where we need to be is where we are and the only way we will arrive there is by beginning to let go of that momentum that sense of compelling need to change, to control, to fix what's going on So in those moments where we do actually land, where we do actually arrive, where we almost accidentally and with some surprise realize, my gosh, I'm present, I'm here. What's that like? What's that like to actually just arrive? Because what we tend to think is the problem is that we're experiencing either the lack of what we want or the presence of what we don't want. We either want more pleasant, enjoyable, flattering, tasty, um, stimulating experiences, whatever they might be. And we want less difficult, um, scary, threatening, uncomfortable, sort of discombobulating experiences, whatever the things that we don't want. And we think that that's what it's about. But actually, and we think that those experiences are what determine the quality of our life. But actually, what more profoundly determines the quality of our life and our experience in any moment is the quality of the attention we give to it. It's the quality of presence with which we meet it, we receive it, we engage with it. 
it's kind of not so much what life brings to us that makes the difference, but what we bring to that meeting. And the practice of meditation is about recognizing that we can actually bring to that meeting the qualities that transform our life, that we have within us that capacity. It's not something outside of ourselves that we're looking for, but it at the same time may not be something we've developed or nourished in ourselves. And that what's really important is the depth and the quality of the connection we're forming with this moment. That capacity to connect, that we speak about it in the language of awareness, mindfulness, presence, being, opening. Many different words we can use that point to, that indicate what that quality, what that qualitative element is that is present when we're no longer trying to get something or keep something or resist something or remove something but we're just here we're just here and yet engaged we're not here in a kind of well I guess I can just sort of sit here but we're really here really here this requires an immense degree of patience from us Patience and gentleness and kindness that we need to learn to bring. It's a little bit like uh, as if we were training a puppy. Now, if we were training a puppy to follow behind us, we need to train a puppy to know how to walk behind us, doing to stop, because actually if a puppy is to live in a human world and survive and be well, it needs to be able to follow some simple instructions. And so what happens? We put the puppy behind us, we say, heel. Does the puppy follow behind us? No, it runs off. So we grab the puppy and we put it back and say, heel. <laughs> now, if every time the puppy runs off, we say, bad dog, stupid dog, hit it with a stick, we bring it back, heel. What's going to happen? Is it going to hang around very long? No. In any moment, it'll just take every chance it can to get out of this place where someone's yelling at us. Our attention is a bit like that. And yet, if the puppy... Mm-hmm. Heal, and then it runs off with the sniff a flower or decorate the wall or whatever it might be wanting to do. We just say, Oh, look, there you are. Come here. Oh, that's where you've got. Hmm, okay, interesting. Come here. Like, that's what our mind is like. It's not learnt necessarily any other way to be. And to actually just gather it in, bring it in, come back, bring it back in that spirit. A kind, gentle, and yet clear respond to the tendency of the mind to fragment, to disconnect and to go off in so many different directions. This is what we learn to bring, to meet it. It's like a training process in a certain way. And yet, as well as training the mind in this process to be present, we're also training our heart because we see we need our heart for this process to give us access to that patient and the caring that it requires to do this work. This work of actually allowing ourselves to arrive. And and the work of it is not something we have to do, but actually just to stand steady in the face of the momentum and the habit and the pull of our life that wants to take us away. 
So while we're engaging very wholeheartedly, and yes, it can be really demanding to do this, what we're actually doing is we're standing steady in the face of a stream and a current that would seek to wash us away from ourselves, from where we are, from this moment. And as we learn to be more and more present, as we learn to arrive, quite naturally there is a qualitative shift that begins to happen that we can recognize without necessarily being able to name or articulate or say what that is, and yet we know as we arrive more fully that something is different. And there's a wholesomeness to it. There's a, a richness and a rightness to simply being where we are. That isn't something we've created, that isn't the result of what we've been doing, but is simply revealed by no longer departing from where we are, no longer escaping from our experience. So we're invited in practice to take responsibility for our life. It's not like it's our fault that our mind is like this, but nor is it someone else's particularly. So not to be blaming ourselves for the condition that we find ourselves in, if it's difficult, but at the same time seeing, well, what's possible? What can I do here that really makes sense, that really works? Because Dharma teaching, spiritual practice, is something essentially pragmatic. It's not esoteric or sort of uh, ethereal. It's about life and what we're really interested in, which I'm reasonably confident in my belief that for all of us, we're interested in being happy and finding peace and understanding truth or knowing God or finding freedom or whatever we might express that basic calling of our heart our life, our being that actually says yes, there is more to discover but that easy gets sucked into that momentum of getting busy with doing things fixing things, controlling things manipulating experiences, people ourselves and yet coming back to that sense of there's that, that deeper core aspiration to actually find ourselves, our life, our truth, which ultimately we actually have never departed from, but have simply not yet fully recognized for what it is. So again and again our practice is to turn towards our life to notice where we turn away from it, where we pull away from it. And we equally turn away or pull away when we're pursuing an experience or rejecting an experience. Whether a present experience, a future experience or a past experience. So we pay attention to that process where we try and get or get rid of. We We talk about this as the process of grasping, of craving and clinging, of resistance and aversion as being something to be interested in, not to judge it, but to look and see what happens, because when we do it, it's actually really miserable. And when we don't do it, it's actually really delightful. And yet, unfortunately, we can't just stop. But we can, through watching, through feeling, through experiencing, we can actually begin to release the conditioning 
factors or processes that seem to compel us. Turning towards our life because we care, because we deeply care, I believe all of us. It's a remarkable and precious thing that it is to be alive. There's a beautiful poem, I don't actually recall the author. Ten thousand flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in winter. When your mind, the heart mind, isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. When we allow ourselves to arrive where we are, and just to say, that line we sometimes think when our mind, our heart mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things. The unnecessary things are not the experiences that we think maybe we should get rid of, like the thoughts in our mind or the pain in our knee, but it's the tendency and the habit to think we have to get rid of it in order to arrive, in order to land truly in ourselves. When we're not caught, when we're not clouded in that, which is not necessary, this is the best season of our life. Being here, being this, that which we are, and coming to know it, fully, consciously. T.S. Eliot spoke about this when he wrote I said to my soul be still and wait without hope for hope would be hope for the wrong thing Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. Still there is faith, but the faith and the hope and the love are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not yet ready for thought. Then the stillness, sorry, then the darkness shall be light, and the stillness the dancing. And in that settling in, in that coming into conscious and unconditional meeting of our life, of our experience, something opens up within us, around us, in and through us. And as we learn to meet each experience without demand, without placing conditions of how it should or should not be, and that ability to meet unconditionally our life, life becomes unconditioned. A sense of boundness is released. A sense of limitation is dissolved. 
And this is the invitation of our practice and of our life to fully, truly, wholeheartedly arrive where we are. As Ryokan, the uh, Zen poet, monk, he lived in the 18th century, once wrote, Do you want to know what's been in my heart since the beginning of time? Just this. Just this. So could we just sit quietly for a few minutes, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.